0: The Firestore, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Firestore makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Firestore's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Firestore's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit the firestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Fleer, and more.
1: Welcome to another edition of Fire Engineering's Tactical Impact. I am your co-host, Jim Silvernail. With me is my co-host colleague, friend, and fellow fire chief Jason Holman. Jason, great to see you again this morning. How are you?
2: Good to see you. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving.
1: Uh, it was it was a, it was a great Thanksgiving and I hope you had the same. Uh always always good to to have a couple of days off but right back into it. Um today I think we've got an outstanding topic. Um something that uh really is important in the fire service and uh we're excited. I'm gonna let Jason introduce our, our, our guest here in a second, but our topic really is going to be uh, around a an article in our fire engineering magazine uh, that came out in November. But uh, it, it's important because I, I think that we sometimes get lulled into the fact that all we do is residential structure fires. And so when we do so many residential structure fires, uh, we, we believe the same tactics will carry over into the commercial and high hazard world. Um, I think after today's discussion, we'll find out that that's not the case, if you haven't known that already, but um, we're going to talk some tactics and strategies in in regard to a hospital fire that occurred right outside Boston, Um, and uh, I I think there's a lot of takeaways here that are positive for all of us to talk about today. So without further ado,
2: Jason, why don't you introduce our, our guest here today? Yeah, we're fortunate enough to have Chief Brian Ardelli from the Brockton, Massachusetts Fire Department. And one of the goals we had set out when we started this this podcast or webinar um, was to use the magazine to highlight uh, good stories, great authors, great lessons. And this one stood out in the November issue simply because of how unique it is and how many challenges this fire department and their their members had to face. Um, And like you said, it's easy to think that uh, these types of facilities, uh, medical facilities in particular, aren't, we're not going to have a fire in them or that because they're type one construction and they have all these protections that uh, we're not going to have big issues. And this article really um, outlined a lot of great things that um, Chief Nardelli broke it down into very specific parts that I think you're going to get a lot of good lessons out of today. And just as a highlight to me that that he'll speak more on was, the front end, long before the fire happened, it sounded like there was a lot of work that went into this that helped facilitate the outcome. To a strong, um, uh, mission-driven fire department that understood their tasks and challenges, three, it, you know, great command presence, and then being able to adapt to the situations at hand and uh, and, and make some changes on the fly after reading the article. So, uh, if you've got the magazine, it starts on page. 34 on the November 2023 issue, um, and with that, I will uh, welcome our guest, Chief Brian Ardelli from the Brockton, Massachusetts Fire Department. Chief, I'll let you do your own bio, um, but thanks for being on the show with us, and we really look forward to listening to the things that you folks did and the lessons learned.
3: Well, thank you, Chiefs. I appreciate it I really. And anytime I can share this story, I'm more than willing to because. We had a lot of great people do a lot of great things that day, uh, from the fire service to the hospital staff to utilities, everybody. So, um, I'm I'm the fire chief in the city of Brockton. I have been for about two and a half years now. Um, 27 year veteran of the department. Came through the ranks, born and raised. Have been here my whole life. Uh, Brockton's about over 100,000 um, population. We're um, 236 member department, um, all career. Brockton's an old mill city. It was the, it was the, uh, it was the men's shoe capital of the world up until, um, you know, probably the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and, and with that, like any industry that moves out of a community, the city falls on tougher times and, and, you know, Brockton has some, has had some tough times, but we're battling back. We have two hospitals in the city. The one we're going to speak of today is Brockton, Brockton, signature Brockton hospital that anchors the East side of the city. And, um, um, good Samaritan anchors, the, um, the other side of the city Um, and Brockton hospital uh, serves about services, about 40 communities EMS wise and around that around our local area, just outside of Brockton. Um, It's a, it's a 216 bed facility uh, originally built in 1896, and you know how it would happen to hospitals when they're built in those cities when they're then they're very small and then they build out and out and out and out and 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 that plays a little bit of a role into into what happened this day you know i think you know it's a non-for-profit hospital they deal with um a, not always an insurance paying population so they they come upon the same hard times that everyone else does um This day started like any other day. You know, I'm I'm an early guy in my office, I'm usually in here, I was doing some work at my desk. And I think anyone in the fire service or any emergency services understands, the radio's always on, the radio's on at my house all the time. The radio's, I'm always here, but you don't, my wife and I was just talking about this last night with something because something was on the radio and she goes, you didn't even hear that. And I go, well, it wasn't really important. And I don't mean to say I tone things out, but we really hear things when we need to hear them. When some, we hear something change. So, Brockton Hospital, will go to two, three times a week, and a lot of times, it's a smoke detector up on the front of the floors. It's, um, you know, not really anything spectacular, you know what I mean? Uh, it's a master box that comes in. So, we send two engines, a ladder, and the deputy. It doesn't come in as a struck box where we're sending, you know, the whole cavalry. So, you know, we get a detector activation, sets off the master box. I'm sitting at my desk. I hear him going there, not thinking much of it. You know, nickel and dime, they're going to be out of there in no time. Well, as I'm hearing it, I hear the first lieutenant call off. He has multiple detectors hit um, activated, which is never the case there. Um, they have great smoke control. They have great compartmentalization. So it kind of keyed me in at first. Then I hear a report that they have smoke at the rear of the building. And um, the deputy drove around the building doing a 360 because it's a pretty big facility. It takes up a whole city block. Um, they drove around the back and he had heavy black smoke pushing out of a ramp area that came from almost like a basement area, and it's he immediately filled out the assignment, four engines, two ladders, um, the rescue. Um, and I started to hear it, I started to walk out of my office. I think I'm gonna start heading that way. Now I don't I don't go on anything unless it's a it's a it's a second alarm I'm a greater. So, you know, working fire assignment, I won't necessarily go. The deputy, you know, the shift deputy handles that. Um I started heading out and I'm walking out it just says I'm doing that. My administrative assistant is walking in and I said, Hey, I'm heading over to Brockton, they got something going on. I just gonna kinda mosey over that way. And she laughed and she said, tell Bri, I said, hi. Well, her husband is the facilities manager at the hospital that I've, that I've known for many years. So, so it, it is intimate knowledge and, and understanding of what goes on at that hospital. As I got over there, I could really see what was going on. And it, and, it, and it was apparent that they had something serious in that basement area. When I got over there, I had received information. And again, I wasn't lights and sirens. I drove over there just, you know, with traffic, just listening. The deputy had everything under control. He was getting everything squared away. When I, when I got there, um, I walked up to the deputy. He, laughed. he says, He says, this isn't a second alarm yet. I said, well, it's going to be. <laughs> Basically, what are you doing in my fire? <laughs> um, and uh, we went to a second. I wanted eyes on. He became my operations chief. Got inside. Our safety chief arrived. I got him inside. We started to meter the building. We received word that it was the electrical vault room, um, which there were no other ways outside of that vault room that was in the basement other than that door. We, could, we went down this ramp. And it was just to the left and you look down and you could see spots coming out from me underneath that door and you could see churning purple green black brown smoke coming up that ramp and out um they had already got national grid on scene which is the local utility company that shut down power um it, one of the things that struck me when i got there i and i said to the deputy i said who doesn't have their truck and pump any one of us knows what it's like when you put the truck and pump improperly that grinding god awful noise well that was actually what's coming out of that vault that was the noises these, this, this switchgear was making. I don't know what was making that noise, but it was bad. And he said no, and he pointed down the ramp. So um, I, I immediately called for an ambulance strike team. I, I had no intentions at this point of ever evacuating a hospital, but I thought that we could have multiple patients that might be in and around, not the patients in the hospital, but potentially people that were in that basement area near there. So we had one on standby. They actually did respond. They staged just off the perimeter of the facility um, I sent the deputy upstairs as my operations chief. He started reporting back that we were having, you know, forty, fifty parts per million of CO. Hydrogen cyanide was starting to rise. One of the problems, we were trying to get some windows open on the upper floors. But again, a, built, a, a hospital that's built in 1896 and is built out in sections to this 216 bed hospital. Now, every window is different. So there's locking mechanisms on everything. So that became a little bit of a challenge. I, I went over to Brian Backoff and I said, I need as many screw guns as you can get hands on because some of the windows were bolted, were screwed shut. So we had to get all that done just to try to get some ventilation. We got confirmation from the utility company that the power was shut down. Now the panel. There's three services that go into into the hospital, A and B panel and the C panel. The C panel is off towards the emergency department. The A and B panel were right in this room we were looking at. They had other um, electricians on scene. We actually asked them if they could confirm that that was the case. We got confirmation. So just as now, I'm thinking I'm going to get back and I'll be back by lunchtime. We'll have this taken care of. Um, although they had to protect in place, they're starting to move some patients around upstairs. I received word that um, at this point, the um, generator power was on. All the generator power and all those lines were going into that switch gear in that room. So that was a game changer. That went from we have all these patients. At the time of the incident, I received word from the vice president of nursing that we had 187 souls that were patients in the building and about 120 staff members. Um, Struck a couple more alarms. We're at a third alarm. We're at a second. We're at a third now and a fourth. Uh, I'm sorry. We're at third alarm at this point. And um, at that point, I was really beginning to think we may have to move people out of here because once I shut down this generator, what's going to happen? I have no other power source. Um, And if I shut down this generator, you know, I'm not as worried about maybe the person that had their hip redone or some people that are walking wounded in the emergency department, or maybe that someone is getting discharged and maybe they were having some shortness of breath yesterday, but they're not really having any difficulties now. I was concerned about the ICUs, the telemetry floors, different things of that nature. One thing that did save us though, the OR had not opened up yet and they weren't doing any cardiac cath So, that was a big, thank goodness we didn't have to deal with something like that. I also received word that we were getting from upstairs from my people that were moving people around on the floors that the nurses were getting a little concerned about. wasn't really a smoke condition when you talk to a firefighter, but to, you know, clinical staff that's upstairs, that rancorous odor was not going to be helpful to this whole thing. So I I actually declared a a tier one hazmat. In the the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, every district has their own hazmat team. And they're made up, they're, they're run by the Department of Fire Services for the state, but they're made up of community firefighters. The thing about it that was really awesome about that was we had, when you get someone that's on the hazmat team, it takes a while to get on that team. So I had people that were 15, 20 years on the job showing up from other communities, some from my own. Tier one is going to bring me four technicians, but they're all experienced people that are going to be able to do jobs. This isn't a kid right out of drill school, right out of the academy. They're going to be able to work as kind of my special forces people to be able to handle, you know, nuclear medicine, the morgue, um, um, the CAT scanners, um, 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 MRI, different things of that nature that they're going to have experience and they're going to know what they're looking for or they're going to know what questions to ask, where a new person on a fire truck may not know that right out of the gate. So when they arrived, my biggest concern is I wanted to make sure that we could meter inside the building. We wanted to get meters in the nursing stations to make sure if anything changed drastically, we were going to be able to make sure we could get people out when we needed to get them out. So as we're thinking, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to formulate a plan in my head, I have multiple people showing up from um, different other chiefs from other communities. Now their mutual aid companies are coming in. And... Um, it, we have a very strong mutual aid um, force in our in our area down here. So I had a couple, of, two of the chiefs that first showed up. I said to him, I need you to go out front. I'm probably going to have to dump this building with all the patients. And we're going to have to get everybody out of here. We're going to split the building in half if that's the case because the generator is still operating. But I know I can't I can't put the fire out until I shut the generator off because of the power going through there. So I sent them out front. My idea was basically to cut the building in half. I was going to have what was called what I thought to be a clean side and a dirty side. Clean side would be out where the lobby is, where the candy shop is, the the, the coffee shop, all that stuff where people don't even know that the building's on fire at this point. Um, and on the back side, we've talked deal with all communications, the command post was set up, we're ready to go to work. At this point, I had asked for, you know, higher level people from the hospital to come out. So I had at this point had the facilities engineer, Brian Backoff. The vice president of nursing, Kim Walsh, someone I knew, she was an emergency room nurse in the emergency room when I worked in EMS many years ago, so I had a comfort level working with her. And the emergency management director, Claire Sias, came out. And Claire's sharp as a tack, I knew her predecessor very well. She came out with a binder, yay big, and said, okay, this is all the information for our evacuations. I said, okay, um, that's not going to do me any good right now. Um, I need a one-pager, and I need you to read it to me, because this at the time of a crisis isn't going to work. Right. So um, we worked real well together. I had them right at my command post. I also wanted the executives, me like the president of the hospital, people of that nature out there, because I'm going to have to stop making decisions for your hospital that I want you to somewhat be involved in. I'm going to run the, I'll, we'll run the show here, but you need to have firsthand knowledge of what's going on. And that didn't happen right away. I think, you know, people were coming from other areas When those chiefs arrived and I sent the first two chiefs out front and I said, you're the EMS section chief and you're going to be the transport section chief. Then I saw two more show up and I said, okay, when I shut the power down in this building, I'm going to have a big issue with elevators. I'm not going to be able to operate my elevators at all. Generators generators down, nothing's going to operate. So we're going to have to get people out of here. So... I sent them up to the street to a staging area. One was going to be EMS staging and one was going to be structural staging. EMS, obviously, to transport the patients and get them out of there when we needed to move them. Structural was really, I needed people to send me fire apparatus with strong backs. I needed strong backs because we were going to have to carry these people down potentially five stories um, through stairways. Because if you if you back up to 1994, I was an EMT working in the city of Brockton. and what is now Good Samaritan Medical Center, this hospital that anchors the other side of the city was Cardinal Cushing at the time, and they had a fire in the boiler room there. No electrical issues. They had power on the whole time, so the elevators were operating, um, different things of that nature. I knew that wasn't going to be the case with this, so we knew we were going to have to, at this point, really evacuate the building, but um, I needed to have a lot of things in place. I needed auxiliary power units. I needed portable oxygen. Well, guess where the cache of portable oxygen is held? at the signature Brockton Hospital. Of course, it's right next to the electric vault room downstairs. So by the time they got into the room, um, forced the door, I, I explained it like Christmas, uh, it's the movie with Macaulay Culkin, uh, Home Alone, when when he tries to burn Joe Pesci's hand and it's, the door handle's bright red. That's basically what this was. Whatever was in there was not going to be usable anyway. So we had to scavenge the building to try to find um, a lot of stuff to be able to use, uh, get oxygen, get people these ICU patients down. Now we need their critical care patients. What do, we, do these EMS providers we're going to call for, are they going to have the ability to even take care of these patients? So that became obviously some concerns out of the gate, but I knew we could handle it. I knew if we split the building in half and everyone upstairs was going to go out the front of the building, structural apparatus was going to park out on Center Street and walk up and go out and just start help moving bodies. They were all ordered to bring their stair chair to carry patients in, if need be, a scoop stretcher, and whatever ALS equipment if they had, because they would be triaged when they got there. One of the most important things, and I'm a, I'm a true believer in striking alarms, not calling for an extra engine or an extra ladder or this or that, because you always know what you have. If I call for a second alarm, I know my Austin guys are going to show up, I know rehab's going to show up, I know, um, I know, um, the mechanics going to come and make sure the trucks are okay. If I just start calling for separate engines and separate ladders none of that other stuff on the sidebar gets called for because the alarm operator that's sitting in the alarm room is sending stuff out and dispatching apparatus. But he, they never heard the word second alarm or third alarm or fourth alarm. One of the things that was very important was it's the same thing with strike teams with ambulances here. So I was calling for, we, I, we're going to call for strike teams. Once a second strike team is called for, the EMS director in our region is called. So Laurie White, the EMS director and her, and her assistant Brian Evangelista, automatically come to the scene, and now they are finding beds for these patients. If I just said, give me 30 ambulances, 40 ambulances, none of those other things are going to happen. So, it's important. We, we In the fire service, I really believe in, in all my years, we've created these modules for a reason, and it's so things get a uh, smooth, and you know what you have when they arrive, and it assesses everything that's going on, and it allows us to have great accountability, and it allows us to be able to check boxes as we move. So, I sent Chief Carroll and Chief Viveros out front to handle EMS and I sent the other ones to staging. Now, I, I explain this like, you know, you don't become a fire chief by sitting in the recliner all the time, right? You know, no, we don't necessarily, I mean, it's true. I didn't, when I came on the fire department, I didn't necessarily aspire to be the fire chief. I just wanted to go to fires and do cool things. But things happen. You go up through the ranks, you, you take on new challenges, right? So, think about now you are the fire chief and you have these surrounding town fire chiefs, because my deputy chiefs are in the building, I have these surrounding town fire chiefs that I have great relationships with. We, I trust them like you wouldn't believe. But now I'm sending them off to do something as important as you're the EMS person. You're going to triage all these people. You're going to take care of all kinds of staging. And I remember I looked at Chief Carroll before he walked away to go out to the front of the building. I said, listen to me, I need you to go out front. I need you to be EMS, the EMS sector's chief. We work with Chief Rivera. So you're gonna, he's going to do transportation. And I need you to call for strike teams and do what you need to do. And I don't want to hear from you unless there's a problem. I had to delegate that off because that's way too big of a ta- of a job. There's multiple, multiple tactics and tasks within that. Think about this, and that's how I explain it to a lot of firefighters and people I talk to. Your child gets their license for the first time. Now you've nurtured and con- you've controlled everything that's gone on in this child's life till they're say 16 years old or whatever the driving age is in your community in your state. Now all of a sudden you see them back out of the driveway for the first time, and you have no control over it. Right? So this is this is this is what I'm talking about. You don't end up the chief of department anywhere, you know, letting everybody else make decisions for you. But now you have to have people, you have to delegate these things off. And it's very important that you do, because if you don't, you'll be in a, you'll be in a world of hurt. So at this point, we have the executives come out and we have, I have a gaggle of press behind me that want to talk. And we set up a command post, a press area. I have a a local chief that used to work in the media. um, And he was awesome. He put out real time feeds on our on our social media. He set up the press for me. And I grabbed the marketing director. I said, we're going to go talk to the press. And she looked at me like I had six heads. And she goes, well, I'm not going to talk to the press. And I told her, I said, you have to understand right now I'm being told I have 187 patients in this hospital. If I don't talk to the press and assure people we're doing everything to make this work, I'm going to have the families of 187 patients standing behind me in my way. So, we really needed to get the good, a a good message out there. We were able to talk to the press. We had some briefings. It went well. At this point, we've collected enough stuff that we're going to now be able to shut down the generator, fight the fire, but stop moving everybody out at once. And it kind of all happened succinctly. It all kind of came together at one time, which was important. The guys, the chiefs out front took care of getting the patients out of the building. We took care of fighting the fire and coordinating the evacuation from the upper floors. We started the evacuation. After 9 o'clock in the morning and about six hours later, we had everybody out of the building. A couple more press briefings in between. We were able to fight the fire. The interesting part. So every time you thought, like like I said, every time you thought um, you had a, a situation where um, things were going well. Okay, we're going to get the power shut down. We're going to fight the fire. Oh, it's all on generator We're going to do this. Now, just as we're going to fight the fire, we stretch two, two and a half down there. We, we're, we're hooked into the fire department connection, but there's no sprinklers in that area. Again, it's an old hospital. Things aren't to code of today because they don't necessarily have to be, right? So we're stretching two, two and a half down into this vault area. All of a sudden, we hear something that sounded like a jet engine. And I looked at Brian back off the the um, the, the facilities manager and I said, what do you think? And he goes, it's the oxygen line. And I went, oh, great. So we're going to send firefighters into a fire-filled environment and we're going to intensify that fire with liquid oxygen. So I said, do you think it or do you know it? I said, well, go shut it down because we have everybody on oxygen now. Go shut it down and see if it dissipates noise went away we went to work so these are those little every time we thought something was gonna work there was a hiccup Laurie white they started moving patients out front and they she Laurie white the EMS coordinator for our entire region said to me she went through six cell phones that that um that day um, just she was using anybody she could get her hands on because batteries were becoming an issue right batteries were dying she got everybody all these people placed the emergency room if they could walk and they weren't gravely or acutely ill, they were moved over to the school of nursing and left there and they said basically we'll come back and get you later. They left some nursing staff with them and said if anything changes, we'll get them out of here earlier. Um, but it went very smoothly. The, 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 one of the things that was interesting that, that you know, I knew I, I, I had seen, I had three alarms out back. Seven, alarms were for, seven of the alarms were for, for, for evacuation. Three of the alarms were to fight the fire and really coordinate a lot of moving parts. When I looked up at one point, I saw an out of town crew there and I said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, we just want to see what's going on. I said, not today to see what's going on. What's your role? Oh, we were sent to, we got to go upstairs. I said, then go do your job. I think things were, I'm a pretty self-deprecating person. I can make fun of myself and I can joke around and laugh and have a great time with this job. But I think when you have an incident with so many moving parts, everyone has to fall in the line. And that was the only hiccup we had all day. And I had this kid at the Mass Fire Academy years ago. And I saw him afterwards, a couple of months afterwards. He goes, chief, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean, I said, no, I get it. Everybody wants to see what's going on, but everyone has a role to play. And if you're not playing your role, who's going to play your role? And then that job's not going to get done. Um, so it went very smooth, um, got through the incident. Again, final briefings. Um, I think when I look back, accountability this became an issue because now this fire came in at 7 o'clock in the morning. We're all changing shifts there. So now I got some guys from one group on the truck, some guys from another group on the truck. The deputy has an aide in our city. So so basically I put both aides on scene and I said, your job is to see when the next when the crew comes out, put their relief on the line and send them back in. Or whatever they're doing, you change them out and you keep all the accountability but work together on this. They did a tremendous job. Um, I had a liaison chief that was from a, a nearby town that worked out well. Every single time I was going to strike an alarm, I had him call them first. Or anytime I was going to do something major, I had them call them first and say, hey, listen, three minutes, he's going to strike another alarm, be prepared. It was kind of, so it kind of worked that there were no surprises. Um, one of the things you get very concerned about in an incident like this is when you, I'm bringing all these resources from right around my city. Well, what's going on out here now, right? So we have our state. Um, state mobilization plan, which puts task force into into operation, and we basically had three task forces from the state level that were actually activated. I looked at I looked at, our, I looked at Chief Clancy from Whitman, and I said I said Tim, I said we got to start thinking about state mobile. We are about the seventh or eighth alarm, and he says, let me make a phone call right now to the to the chief officers that are working in the in the communication center and see what what the status of that is. They had already they had already spun up state mobilization because that can take a good hour or so to get every, all those moving parts to happen, right? So we wanted to make sure those things were happening. We had plenty of rehab on scene. I think one of the um, the thing with the hazmat team that was really awesome was um, they were able to go up. Now, think about this. Here you have all these firefighters, turnout gear, SCBAs, ready to go to work, walking through these floors. And what are, the, what are the clinicians wearing? What are the doctors, the nurses, everybody wearing? They're basically wearing pajamas, right? I mean, they're in scrubs. They have no protection. They were so dedicated to their patients and what they were doing for their patients. I, I couldn't have gotten one of those one of those clinicians out of there if you paid them a million dollars. They were going to stay with their patients, but they were still concerned. So the hazmat team was able to go up, and they were able to put out a, a number of remote metering. And they went up to each, um, each nurse's station, and they put it down. And they'd say, okay, you have like four units all in this one unit now because there's smoke condition in the other one. There's a t- person sitting down in a truck that if any one of these different things turns red, they're going to have someone up here right away and they're going to get you guys out of here. So it gave them a sense of like, you could almost see the relief in their face. Here they are trying to take care of their patients. One other issue that we ran into is medications. Now the power's off, the the locking mechanisms, the Pyxis, they had battery backup, but now we're a little ways into it. The battery backups are failing. Um, so, so basically, they almost had to put in fake stuff to get the medications out for their patients to be able to treat them for what they had to do. so that be, those are the, those are the little things on the hospital side, not little things, big things on the hospital side that they had to really work out logistically, kept me in the loop the whole time, but those were I can't help them with that. that's their own sources. We had three patients, uh, three three dead bodies um, in in the building that were um, in the morgue. Um, if you're sitting at home and you see a hospital on fire and your grandparent died the night before, what do you think is going to go on with your grandparent? They well, they're the last ones to get out of the building, right? So we were able, again, the hazmat team, um, Deputy Chief Kevin Galligan, who was a deputy chief on our job, was the was one of the leaders on the hazmat team that day. And the emergency management director came up to me and said, Chief, what about the patients in the morgue? And I said, okay, we're going to handle that. And I looked over at Kevin, and Kevin just goes, we got it. And what they were able to do was they were able to not only get them out of the building, they did it professionally, discreetly, and with respect. They got on the phone to some local nurse, to some local funeral homes and said, listen, you know the situation. We need you to send some cars over. We're going to get them out to you. They brought them up. No one even knew those bodies were in there or they were even moved. It was done. And I, I told Deputy Gallagher, and I said, you guys on the hazmat team were like my special forces. So now he wants me to get him a SEAL trident or something like that. I said, that's not happening. Um. But anyway, so so it went smoothly. Um, we were able to again evacuate. We were able to, in the end, have one final briefing. It was interesting. You know, you have to have the support not only of um, your your you know obviously the hospital. They were on board. They understood what had to happen. But also my local leaders. You know, the mayor is a is a is a is a friend. You know, I I, I would I would definitely call him a friend. I've known him for many years, and he showed up there and I briefed him on what was going on and he walked over and he stood next to the fence and he said, "Let me know when you need something," and that was it. It was it was. He understood that wasn't his realm, and, and that was important to understand that he didn't try to get involved. He didn't try to get involved with the president of the hospital. The president of the hospital didn't try to get involved with that stuff. They wanted to make it work, and I think a lot of that goes to the communication ahead of time. You know, I, I speak to a lot of emergency management directors at hospitals who, since this incident happened, and they just don't have maybe that same relationship with maybe the fire departments that are in their community. They don't maybe not have the relationship with their presidents of the hospitals. so. I would tell people you need to get that real early. You need you need people to understand that. Like when something like this happens, there's no real playbook. This was nothing. You know, I, do you think about this stuff? I think as, as fire personnel, you drive by any building, you're thinking, all right, if I had someone trapped on this porch, what am I going to do? I I do that all the time driving around the city. But something of this magnitude with so many moving parts, I think when you look at the big picture, there's you know. This wasn't an accounting firm or an architectural firm. This is a hospital. This is a mini city that has nuclear medicine, CAT scans, MRIs, operating rooms, um, medications that could kill people if taken the wrong way. You know, so you need to have that in a working and, and I, I, I can't. Say enough for working with the hospital that day. They understood the incident command system. They understood that they needed to stay at the command post and be ready to give good information when needed. The mayor was right there. Um, he was he was he was ready to help it with anything. I really didn't need much from him because I have a great relationship with my surrounding chiefs. I have a great relationship with the deputies that are in this in this department and all the fire departments around us. So it worked out very well. It, it, I, I have to tell you, I, in the end, I know the hospital was very nervous about what it was going to look like. And I said, you know, in, in the last final briefing, I said, you know what you have to do? You have to say, we just evacuated. In the end, it was 172 patients because they were able to um, discharge some of them before we had to get them out of there. I said, what you have to say to them is, we just evacuated 172 patients from a hospital fire with noxious, 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 noxious gases and things going through the building, and we never once had one injury, and that's the part you have to focus on. You know, yeah, is the hospital going to shut down for a while? Uh, is it going to hurt the area down here? Absolutely, but you know what? It was very, very nice to to see how everyone you know, everyone followed their followed their their guidelines, and they they knew they had a job to do. And I remember talking to one of my very good friends who was the chief in the town of Stoughton next door when I sent out front. And he basically said to me, he says, well, no one was going to fail at that. That was like a, that was an incident of a lifetime. Everyone was on point. And, and it's important, but you have to think about that every day, not just at a, the, you know, the day you have the hospital fire, that you have to evacuate all these people. So, but that's about, that's about it in a nutshell. I'd be more than obviously happy to talk about anything. If you guys have any questions at all.
1: I know Jason's probably got a bunch, but I, I'm going to start off with really quick. You, you stated something important and that was, you guys are in there about two or three times a week. How important was free planning, knowing that building, and how did it play in the success of your outcome?
3: So so I, I think it it played very well. I think um um so engine company four, ladder company four are close by. They're on the east side. They're right near the hospital. I was a captain over there for a year when I first made captain before I went back downtown again. And one of my biggest things was that hospital. I always wanted to pre-fire plan that hospital. Now, where my office is at headquarters is on the west side of the city, Engine Company 5, they never make it over there. They'll do maybe one pre-fire planning a year and that's about it. So, we had maps um, when we first arrived. I said to Brian, I said, I need every map Physical map. I don't want iPads. I don't want any of that stuff. Give me a physical map, and I want you to circle different things that I'm going to tell you I want you to circle on this, and then our crews can go to work. Very important. But I think one thing that was even more key, and I say this a lot of times, is his staff, his facilities personnel, different people like that, they were right with him. And if we needed someone to liaise with one of our crews to get us into a door, to get us somewhere, they went with them. Because remember, this fire was really contained to that room. Now, in the end, did the fire get out? Yes, it did. It got out through the conduit. Obviously, it broke down after a while and got into some other rooms. It was quite extensive. It got into the cafeteria. There was a lot. Of, there was a pretty heavy firefight going on there, but it, it didn't. It didn't have the ability to spread through the hospital. So we were able to put these facilities personnel with some of our crews to go and assist with those different things. But pre-fire planning, just understanding the building to begin with was huge right out of the gate. Because again, it's a hospital, again, built in 1896 that's been built out in different shapes and sizes and different floors and all different things. So it's not just one giant building that like, oh, this is this, this is this. It's not perfect. It was built, you know, it's New England. Everything's old and
2: (laughs) disjointed. Yeah, Chief, going back to the beginning, uh, you know, with those first companies, and you had mentioned that it was on the, the back side of the building and how uh, they initially were stretching a line. But can you just talk to the, the important role that those first companies had? It sounds like they had enough patience to really get a good idea of what was going on um, and just kind of talk about how that those first two companies kind of set the tone for the incident.
3: Absolutely. You know, we always say, you know, the, the way the fire goes the first line, right? Um, and that's so true, right? Um,
2: so so when those
3: first companies arrived, um, first do was uh, engine four, engine seven, and and ladder four was out front. The deputy immediately got everyone around to the back of the building. We have in, in our SOG that everyone, we, we have, especially major commercial buildings, we always go to the same spot. So even like engine seven at that building, they feed the fire department connection. They, they pull up out back, on a regular master box, they're not even doing it, but they get out and they walk through to the front lobby and meet with the deputy chief. So no one is ever disjointed in the building. So they're always being able to give in orders. So those first crews, they stretched right away to the fire department connection. Then they started stretching a two and a half of one truck. They were hooked into a hydrant. They stretched a two and a half of another truck. I have to say, and I said this to the deputy afterwards, the patience they showed because they were ready to go to work. Let's put this thing out. And then they had to wait, right? And then. We're ready to put it out again oh nope now you got to wait again so they were they were in place what happened was though one of those two and a half was charged and abandoned and i sent them we had to send some of those crews because we had to make sure we were being told like anything you're told by staff or you're told by civilians whoever it is that it's only you can't get into that room any other way well we can't take that as gospel, right? So we had to make sure we got our crews in there to make sure they got around that. To make sure, yes, you're not getting in that room any other way. There is no fire extension. They were opening. They were opening um, ceilings right outside of where that vault was, where they had stretched another inch and three quarter line, just in case they did have some casual fire. But it was more a game in patience for those guys, to kind of waited out because they couldn't do anything. And you know, any fire, people are chomping at the bit. They, you know, they're afraid if they put their line down, someone's going to take it. You know.
1: So I was going to ask what kind of fire volume was in there after they actually made entry into the room and were the two and two and a half, the two, two and a half adequate sound like they were, I mean, you guys were on top of it.
3: Yes. So yes, there was the two, two and a half worked out great. Um, really, they, I think they only hit it with one. Remember this thing probably burned a good hour to an hour and a half unfettered in this vault. Right. So it was all the switch gear, anything that was plastic, asbestos, anything, it probably already burned out. Where the problem became is now what happened was when it got out through the conduit, it went through over a storage room next to it where the oxygen was held and then another storage room and then got into the cafeteria which had a lot of wood structure. So they were chasing it for a while. I would say they probably chased it for a good hour and a half to two hours once they got in there. Because they remember they had those lines placed, we're thinking it just stayed in one place. Now we got stretching lines around from the outside into another part of the building. So there was quite a bit of fire volume. I have to tell you, we went in there. They had just bought they had just bought two of those um, walk behind floor washers. That are those big things. I think one of them was like a sit on one, and it washes the floors. They, they had stored one in the electric room, and it was a. Pile of molten plastic and melted metal. Um, so yeah, that that went out the window. But yeah, there was a heavy fire volume in there. I do have some pictures that shows conduit that had just basically exploded and cables coming right out of the conduit. So they have a you know they have a monumental task ahead of them trying to get that hospital reopened because now you've had smoke spread. The safety chief at one point early on told me he was up on the fifth floor and he had smoke pushing from the electric panel and that was just the smoke
2: coming through migrating from that through that conduit from from the electric room. Chief, I know you had a, a large evacuation uh, project or procedure operations going on, but more isolated to the, the area of origin, were there any search operations that had to be done by crews and were they small rooms, large area, or how did they approach that? So what was good was once we were able to find out that the fire was not,
3: had, had not spread out of that room at all, that area where it's in is very desolate. You're not in that area unless you're an engineering person, physical uh, janitor, something to that effect. So we knew we had anyone that was going to be in that area was going to be able-bodied. I didn't have any patients in that area. Um, we were able to get crews immediately in that area, and make sure it didn't spread. Then we started searching rooms out. And that's when we were able to take some of the facilities people to start unlocking doors. I didn't One of the things I really wanted to be careful of that I told the operations chief earlier is I don't want to start forcing doors if we don't have to, mainly because if we damage the door, now we've lost control. If we we have someone in a stable environment, we can get in there, open doors, okay, open, close them, open, close them, open, close them, leave them unlocked, do whatever we need to do and get around. We also were able to get right above it um, where the cafeteria extended out to where people had left that and the fire originally had not spread there, but again, like I said, unfettered for a while, went through the conduit, now it got into that cafeteria or above it. Um, but no, we did start, we we, I, we had probably three or four companies searching initially, but they were also assessing the spread of the fire at that point. So they were searching and again, we didn't have any patients because it's really kind of like a half basement that it went down to and it's all facilities management engineering stuff down there. Um, one of the things we had to do, we had some, we had some loose um, petroleum objects, uh, uh, barrels of petroleum stuff in the boiler room that had to be removed, stuff like that. So little things like that, they were working on and getting done as they, as they made sure the fire hadn't spread, and made sure no one was in the vicinity. But it was in that area there was no smoke condition. Like the the smoke, the smoke really came out of that, um, out of that. Um, if you look in one of the pictures you can see the first picture in the article if you go be just beyond those firefighters it goes down a ramp and it really came right up that ramp the picture you see there doesn't do the smoke condition justice that was probably later on in the fire we were a little busy to take pictures early on but uh yeah but yeah so that that picture there if you go just beyond that you see that that peaked roof that's actually the cafeteria and just to the right and down a ramp there is where the actual fire was and it really held to that room very well so it even most of the smoke that pushed pushed up that ramp and out one of the things that was interesting that we had just as a side note one of the things that was interesting that we we had had a a situation uh, about a month before where we had a building owner who was trying to get an occupancy permit. And my fire prevention deputy called me very frustrated, said this guy's pulling all the stops, he's pulling all the politicians. I had like former mayors calling me, trying to pressure us to do this occupancy permit. They didn't think it was a big deal. What happened was this guy needed this occupancy permit to be able to get the financing he wanted. And we held our ground, we worked out a deal, so everybody in the end was happy. But when the mayor showed up, I pointed down the, pointed down the ramp to the mayor and said, see those, cause you could see under the smoke. I said, see those blue doors on the left-hand side? Uh, yeah, I think so. I said, those are the fire doors. Those are the appropriate fire doors that are supposed to be in a building. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, remember Petronelli Way a week ago where, you, where everybody was pushing to get this occupancy permit? I said, this is why this stuff's important because if, if those fire doors weren't the appropriate fire doors, we would have had an auto extension up the outside of this building. We'd have potentially had fatalities. So I, I, sometimes lessons learned on that perspective is a good thing as well.
1: You hit a little bit on the ventilation aspect. How hard was it uh, in that room to, to truly ventilate um, that that area?
3: So it, it, was, it was really – you really couldn't do much because you had nowhere to draw from. You almost had to set up like almost a smoke ejector effect. Um, it really – we got it open, left the doors open. It vented on its own eventually. Um, we did put a fan going up that ramp to kind of draw some of it. But this ramp in this area was so big, it was really hard to create – any kind of a draft because it was such a big open area. So at that point, when we had all that out, the building was just about evacuated. One thing I can say, and, and we're so, we've are so we gotten such a push towards battery-powered tools, battery-powered PPVs, battery this, battery that. One thing everyone should keep in mind is when you have such a long, protracted incident as this, and we have fans operating on the floors because we're trying to get the windows open upstairs to get fresh air for the for the patients that are still up there. Now we got lighting stanchions, battery operated. All these different things that are battery operated, those batteries don't last forever. So as we were coming to later in the day after the 3 p.m. hour and the shadows are starting to get longer, they remember this is February in in the Northeast, the battery started dying on the lights we had in the hallways on our PPVs. And you know, unlike years ago, we can't just go down the corner and the gas station and get some gasoline and put it back in our fan or something, right? Or or years ago when I got on the job, like sure like you guys, you'd go over, start the generator in the truck, bring the line into the building and until that truck ran out of diesel fuel, you were good to go with power, right? That's not the case. So I think you know, there's such a push on the on on batteries, and 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 I understand the the value of them and, and the and the capability and, and what they are now compared to when we first got on the job. But there are still those limitations. You have to really keep an eye on it and think about. Them. Maybe you should have extra batteries, and and maybe you should have extra charging units on your trucks just for these
2: just for these situations. That's an important point, and again, it goes back to. You get to well, you're, most of the time they're great. They're well, the way you use them, but that one time when you really need them, you start having yeah. those challenges., yeah. yeah. You talked about, uh, briefly about accountability. What kind of system was to employed to to keep track of that, that especially with so many people, there's so many different things going on in that incident. So we don't we don't operate with a tag system. We're actually looking to go to a tag system. We actually operate
3: with riding slips. So every company officer is responsible for a riding slip on their vehicle. So all those riding slips are brought up to the command post. So the riding slips are in front of the aid. Now, again, it became a little daunting because we sometimes the, the riding slip might not be changed if a guy jumps for a guy earlier, stuff like that. Usually what they're supposed to do is cross out the guy's name, put the new guy's name on it initially. You know, like any other firefighter, that doesn't always happen, right? So, so that became daunting. I think in the end we had a good system with the uh, deputies' aides. When they saw a crew come out to rehab, drop their bottles, drop their packs, whatever the case may be, he pulled off because we had the on the oncoming day crew arriving there, and we left them in place, um, and we waited, um, and until their counterpart came out, they weren't allowed in the building. So they, they were told to they were told to stand stand pat, and when their crews came out. They then replaced that crew. So it, it, it just the time of day, it became it just became difficult. The people weren't jumping on the truck to go to a master box at the Brockton Hospital. It just happened to be guys. You know, this wasn't September 11th where they, you know, this was a terrorist attack and everybody wanted to be there to be able to save lives. These guys, some guys came in early for others and some did, you know what I mean? So there was definitely some, and I don't think we could have done it any better. I, I, I really don't. I think we kind of put those guys and said, you're in charge of making sure we swap these people out. Accountability for the rest of the building. Um, I had a deputy chief that was handling most of where everybody was in the building on the command board. Um, we use just a, a regular, um, you know, expo marker, tactron accountability board. It's not electronic. It's, it's as bare bones as you can get. And it works well for us. Um, but the, the accountability aspect with getting them, making sure we had the crews, the offgoing night crew away and the, and the oncoming crew in got a little dicey, but not dicey, but it just, it, it, it brings to mind we have a big facility here and we need to stop moving people and i need the right people in place to do this right now
1: i think truly one of the big takeaways from this is your ics your unified command um i want to compliment you on that i think i think outstanding i mean we don't get these every day but when you do you definitely want to be ready for game day and um there's only one way to handle an ops, an, a huge operation like this, and that's a unified command. And also, I think there's something to be said about that forward tactical chief too in, in the inside, um, just to coordinate everything. You know, a residential structure fire doesn't require that, but a building of this magnitude and all the companies you have working, I think there's something to be said about that forward tactical chief. Um, yeah. So I, I I like how you had your first new deputy go do that. Because who else knows their staffing better, yes. right?
3: And 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 I, I'm very fortunate. My deputies are high charges. The deputies we have in this job are high charges, and and it gives me eyes in on such a big building. I remember think about it as a chief officer, you think at an executive level, and you're not thinking the now. You're thinking potentially the 20 minutes from now. So I got a, I have you know a lieutenant and a captain up there that are thinking, okay, five minutes from now. Right. I have a I have a deputy chief up there who's thinking at an executive level that's thinking 20 minutes, 45 minutes from now. So he's understanding what's going through my mind outside of what the decisions we have to make inside so we can be successful. And That makes a we do that quite a bit. We'll, we'll do it with a three story wood frame. I mean, we 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 get eyes on and not to not to micromanage, but to just to kind of get me good information on the outside, potentially, you know, and it, and it, and it works well for us. It works well for us i think you know the thing too with ics i think you know we're naturals in the fire service at ics we really are and i don't think you know i don't think we realize how natural it is for us to build that up you know what i mean everybody knows the components do you always use all the components no but they're all sitting right back here ready to be used so you just have to say okay we're going to build it as we go we're gonna make sure we have the right pieces in place. And as we build it as we go, we're gonna make it just that much bigger so we're not caught behind the eight ball. I had a funny, I had a I'll never forget I was a new I was a new firefighter and I was like a sponge. I just wanted to hear every conversation, know what was going on everywhere. I just was very interested in the fire service as a whole. And I, my my shift deputy, we had a fire one night and I said to him, I said, I said, Depp, I said, how do you make a decision when you're going to strike another alarm? Like, what is that? I just, I'm just a new kid here, but I'm just, I'm, we were sitting at a cup of coffee at three in the morning after, after a fire. And I said, if you don't mind me asking, Deputy, how do you make that decision? And he says, well, if I turn around to give an order and no one's there, I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty intuitive. I use that a lot.
1: I was, uh, as a battalion chief, in a, if I was at first or second due, I know, Jason, you're the same way. I wanted to try to get inside, and you know the first new reaction of a captain is, "Chief, what are you doing in here?" And it's, I'm not here to micromanage. I'm here to play traffic cop. You make you make all the dis- I'm going to help you make decisions, but really it's more of a traffic cop type of uh, situation, not to micromanage. But uh,
3: that's great. So I, I I say this a lot. and When I was a deputy, I used to say, "Will the deputy will go on extrication calls sometimes, depending on if it's car into a building or something like that?" And I always used to say please understand, I'm going to stand back here like a wallflower. I'm going to take command. But my aspect of command in this is you're the operations guy. You're going to make the decisions. If you need an aircraft carrier to come up Warren Avenue, I'm going to try to get you that aircraft carrier, right? That's my job. I'm the guy to get you what you need. So, th- so so, I think, again, going to the whole idea of ICS and building it out and having a functional, tactical mindset of how you're going to do that is the important part, because you have to build it in the pieces that you think are going to be right for you. You're not always going to have all those pots,
2: but the pots you need, you need, and you need to know where they fit. Well, Chief, I can't thank you enough for uh, sharing that story. There's so many lessons. I think we could talk for hours on this, but we're coming up on that one-hour point for us. Um, is there anything you want to leave, you know, with the with the people watching um, that that you want to make sure, or anything you want to add before we close it out for the morning? So I talk, I do, I
3: talk about this a lot, Chief, and, and I have to say, this was a team effort of team efforts. Yeah, I'm the chief. I was the IC down to the kids we had in drill school at the time that came up there and just would help move patients around, to the uh, facilities personnel that worked there, to the nursing staff, to the clinical staff of any kind. Everybody played their role. They they took care of their part of the incident. And that was what was vital to all of this. We They just had the Firefighter of the Year Awards for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I, the two groups that happened to be at that breaking point, I, I, you know, we put it in, I had the deputies receive it for their groups, but also for every community that assisted us in the entire operation. Because this, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, right? It takes a lot to evacuate a hospital, right? So, um, I think um, when everybody stayed in their lane and did their job, that's really what was that, that's was the key to the entire operation. Everyone did what they were supposed to do. I believe as a firefighter, I always wanted orders. I wanted to be told what to do. I didn't want to freelance. People want to be told what their job is. Do your job and go out there and do it to the best of your ability. And I, we couldn't have asked for more that day.
1: Once again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for being a firefighting fire chief, first of all. <laughs> That's uh, very important in today's world. But
2: uh, thank
3: you.
1: Yep. Yeah, thank you for coming. And uh, before we go, though, let's talk about the magazine real quick, Jay. You got two seconds? Let's, uh, first of all, give props to our good buddy Mike Galliano for this cover. I'll try to get it on there. In his article in uh, this magazine, we got a lot of good tactics this, this month in November. A lot of shipboard firefighting. Um, very important as to, you know, what has currently happened um, in the Jersey area. So, uh, you know, get your hands on this magazine. Also, uh, I think our, our editor-in-chief, David Rhodes, hit it out of the ballpark again. Uh, with throwing ladders, you know, you go into it thinking you're going to be reading an article about tactics and really it's more about your uh, it's, it's about development and and your growth. So uh, once again, great job by David. Um,
2: But any, any departing thoughts, Jay? No, just uh, thanks to to chief Nardelli, especially on short notice, but uh, I didn't get the magazine till late. And I was like, man, this is, this is an important story for people to, to hear and, and to actually hear the components, the article's great, but it's always good to get that first-hand account in person through words and inflection of all those things. So I just thank you so much for doing that. And I wrote down a lot of notes while you were talking, and I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your morning to share that with everybody. Of course. Anytime I get to talk about fire stuff, I want to talk about fire stuff. Hey, yeah, right. fire,
3: we do enough line-item uh, sure. budgets personnel yeah. stuff. If we get to talk about fires, let's talk about fires,
2: right? That's right.
3: 100%. A great job.
2: I mean, commendable just from everything we've seen and heard. I got to echo Jim's point about those first do arriving units, getting the job done right away, setting it up for success and establishing that ICS organization early on really paid off. It's really, mm-hmm. really commendable. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Everyone did a great job.
1: All right. That's a wrap on this episode of Tactical Impact. We thank you for watching. Thank you, Chief Nardelli. And uh, we'll catch you next episode.
0: The Firestore, equipping protectors with passion. Every decision the Firestore makes as a company is about its customers. As the holiday season has quickly approached, Explore a wide selection of unique and practical gifts at the Firestore's gift center. Find the perfect presence for firefighters, EMTs, and first responders today. The Firestore's goal is to get you the gear you need, when you need it, at prices you can afford. Visit thefirestore.com for everything but the truck and shop its family of brands including Streamlight, MSA, Lion, Flear, and more.